one can always ask more questions once you know more. Right. And uh, I think that's the nice thing about science is somehow the frontier continually expands. Mm-hmm. It's not a fixed frontier. It's a moving frontier, which the more you learn, the further the frontier is away uh, because you're smarter and you know what you don't know. At, le- at, least, at least you know some of what you don't know. Uh, but there are always things you just don't know, period, until you try to make, try to observe. And that's where you realize the nature is really more complex than you imagined, than you thought. Talking to people about dark matter and neutrinos can be funny. Surely you're joking. Hopefully, yes. What a wonderful universe. Welcome to Surely You're Joking. I'm your host, Dr. Kevin Peter Hickerson. Today I'm joined by fellow comedian host, Jimmy O'Gang. Hi, Th- Jimmy. Thank you for including yourself in the fellow comedian category. Is that- <laughs> fellow comedian? I'm a comedian too. Yeah. <laughs> I should have said comedian and fellow host. That yeah. Been- <laughs> there you go. That, that's a better description, Kevin. Um, today, today there was some exciting news that came out of NASA, and so I thought it would be a great time uh, to bring in a, a friend of mine who I've known for a long, ta- long time. He's also a professor here at Caltech. Um, he's been an amazing mentor and role model. Um, I'm certainly not living up to that so far. <laughs> uh, super great guy. He was the head of uh, JPL for a long time. He's recipient of the Philip J. Class Award for a Lifetime Achievement, the Carl Sagan Memorial Award. He's in the National Academy of Science. He is a National Medal of Science, uh, Magellanic Premium Prize. Wow. And uh, probably the the most famous of the awards you got simply because of the way it was delivered, the NASA Distinguished Public Service Award that was awarded to him on the Stephen Colbert show. And then more recently, the Howard Hughes Memorial Award, Professor Ed Stone. Surely he's joking. We finally got our first sponsor, guys. Yeah. That's right. We're going to be rich. <laughs> and what's better than it being one of our guests? Someone we know and like. Dr. Anthony Roy. He brought these bras in last time he was here. It's these gecko technology. Yeah, the secret is this patented lining called Gectech. It's this uh, laboratory-tested silicone that makes intimate contact with even sensitive skin and uh, we got to play with them, throw them on the window. Remember, it was like a crazy toy we played. It was like Ninja Star. Yep. Dude, and Kate Quigley <laughs> tried on the bra, uh-huh. and she loved it. And she loved it. I'll say it's the most high-tech bra out I there. I want one. Where Where do I buy it? You can get it at kellykayapparel.com. That's K-E-L-L-I-E-K-A-P-P-A-R-E-L.com. And uh, with our podcast, we're going to have a promo code for you guys. That's right. It's S-Y-J. Use that for 25% off at checkout. That's 25% that not only gets you a discount on the bra, it also helps support this podcast, which we badly need. So yeah. you got it, especially our fans out there, go for it. So once again, that's Kelly K, K E L L I E K, apparel.com. Kelly K, apparel.com. Punch in a promo code SYJ for 25% off. That's right. Kelly K, apparel, apparel engineered for women. And Griff. Yay! Hey. Welcome to Shirley Joking. I think that's officially the longest uh, <laughs> intro I've done. Yeah, and it's also the first name that you never messed up. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> he messes I, up everybody's <laughs> name. Can't, can't mess up Ed Stone. It's very hard to mispronounce Ed Stone. Um, Ed, I've known you for... Uh, uh, do you mind if I call you Ed? That's fine. Yes, yeah, that's good. <laughs> can, I, call can, I, can I call you Ed? I don't have a PhD. Yeah, yeah, that's it? good. That's okay, good. All right. Uh, I've known you since the 90s when you mentored me when I was working on a, a company project. And then uh, I was working on what eventually, I guess you could say, is kind of like the iPad 
our attempts to do that back in the 90s. Um, also, you were a professor of mine when I came back to grad uh-huh. school uh, for the survey class. Um, and in fact, some of the guests that are on this show also were uh, giving presentations okay. on that show, like Kip Thorne, for example, because he, mm, he yeah. came in to talk about LIGO, but this was years before the results. Um, but the main reason that uh, I asked you to come today is, and I'm very happy that you did, uh, is because you were also the PI for the Voyager program, probably one of the most amazing space probes mm-hmm. ever made by mankind. Um, so did, it, did you watch the, the uh, news announcement? Yes, I did. Would you yeah. like to give a summary? <laughs> <laughs> there had been in 2012 a report uh, from Hubble of that there was a plume uh, coming uh, out of Europa, which is one of the moons of uh, Jupiter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we knew from Voyager flyby that uh, there was a thick uh, icy crust to Europa, but it was cracked uh, because of the tidal flexing uh, in it, as it orbited Ju- uh, Jupiter, trying to keep its one face always facing Jupiter. couldn't quite do that, and that result was uh, flexing of the crust, which melts, melts the ice, and so we believed there was a liquid water ocean beneath that. Even back when it passed by. That's right. Which that was, was like 40 years ago. That was right? uh, 1979. Oh, so, uh, yeah, okay. yeah, 37. Right. Yeah, 37 years ago now, or whatever that is. Um, and uh, then the Galileo mission returned uh, in the, uh, the 2000s uh, and uh, the, measured the magnetic field of Europa and found out that the field actually varied, re- reversed polarity as it orbited Jupiter, which meant it was not a, a field of Europa itself, but one which was induced by its motion in orbit around uh, 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 Jupiter and had to be a conducting fluid uh, beneath its icy crust, liquid water ocean. Mm-hmm. And with, with salt in it. With right? salt yeah. in it. Mm. And just so, like ours. Yeah, just like <laughs> ours. And here on Earth, wherever you find liquid water, whether it's at the bottom of the ocean or in the ice pack or in rock miles down. It doesn't matter. Wherever there's liquid water, there's microbial life. And so mm-hmm. there's clear that uh, this has got to be a place that we, we take seriously as a possibility that microbial life at least might have well have evolved and could still be quite thriving in that ocean. It takes energy, which we know is there. It takes water, which we know is there. And it takes uh, various uh, organic materials, which are constantly raining down on the surface and presumably being incorporated in what's uh, beneath. Now, when I look at pictures of Europa, I see the cracks that you're talking about. Um, I, I guess those were taken by Galileo. Um, and But there's also all this like orange material on top of the ice. Is that the organic material or is that uh, some other kind of dust? That would be, well, I think the interpretation is that the cracks themselves uh, are places where the surface is cracked and and some fluid from below can come out and there's a coloration. Now, Mm. if you look at it by eye, it would all look white. So, but there are subtle color differences which you can enhance to see. So the images you see, in order to see them, really have been enhanced. Ah, okay. Uh, so mm-hmm. these are just stuff which is, you know, in the presumably in the water. But it basically looks like Hoth, the space world in Star Wars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Somebody yeah. spill yeah. some tang on the monitor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's right. what happened. So this is awesome. Is this like a confirmation? There's water now in Europa. Well, uh, we knew there was water ice. We knew that mm-hmm. from Earth observations because you can tell that water ice has. A characteristic signature. So we knew there was water ice. What we did not know until Voyager was the possibility that beneath the water ice was liquid water. Mm. So this uh, is basically a giant iceberg on top it, of yes. it. Yes, yeah. and we see ice rafts. So it's what Galileo saw was uh, regions called chaos regions where the uh, cracked areas have been broken up into ice packs 
and then refrozen. Uh, and so it, there certainly suggested there was liquid water. And then the magnetic field reversing, uh, because it was induced, uh, told us there had to be fluid under there, which is electrically conducting. So now the next step is to, is it to see if there's life there? And how do we go about doing that? Well, the next step is to, is to better understand where these spots are. Mm-hmm. And there is a mission called the Europa Flyby Mission, which is just now beginning to be studied. Uh, and it would go into orbit around Jupiter, but in such an orbit that it would dive in to uh, pass very close to Europa and then back out where it's safer, then back in, because it's very, very uh, high, high radiation where Europa mm. is. You would not want to, a spacecraft would have a challenge living there very long. Which, so you, which in fact, probably means anything that does make it to the surface is probably killed, I would think. Yes, yeah, so it, it would be a sterile oh. surface, but you don't have to go down very far, a meter or so, and this uh, radiation is absorbed. Right, just uh, like uh, with uh, the nuclear physics experiments that I work on, we put a lot of them were underground for that yeah, very reason. Yeah. You, you don't have to go very far if you... Mm few uh, thousand meters to block out basically anything coming yeah, well, from anywhere. In fact, the really intense radiation in Jupiter is just, the- just near the surface. Uh, it's, it's absorbed very quickly. But uh, what that means is that, uh, there's, uh, that you do need to get beneath the surface eventually. Mm-hmm. Uh, or if it's coming out in a geyser, it's coming from below the surface, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the question is, with the stuff coming out of these, in these plumes, what is it? Uh, and uh, and there's some evidence from the earliest uh, observations of the first uh, plume observation. There's water uh-huh. there because there were the com- components of water, hydrogen and oxygen. Uh, but uh, at Europa, one, I mean at Enceladus, at Saturn, another moon which has geysers erupting, Cassini has actually flown through the plumes. And so one idea would be to fly through these plumes. Uh, they're variable. They're not always there. So it's going to be a challenge. They've looked, I think, this latest set of observations, there were 10 uh, observations that they made. Uh, three of them had plumes. Uh, the other seven did not. And so... Uh, so the, the odds are not in favor of getting them just on one pass. One pass yeah. is not enough. You have to be in orbit so you can go back in mm. and keep going back in. So is and, there a chance that we'll see an orbital mission? Oh, the, the, the uh, Europa f- flyby mission, is a, it's orbiting Jupiter. Oh, yes, okay. yes. Oh, it will so go into orbit around Jupiter. And that's why I say it'll dive in to Europa and then zoom back out, way out, and then zoom back in. And mm. looping, so, looping, looping. So, uh, like Cassini, it will sample the moons. That's right. Many times. That's and right. Bruce Willis is in that ship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. That's right. right? <laughs> this is very exciting stuff. Well, this is awesome because at first, when I thought, I'm not very science guy. I'm, I play the every man that's here, you know, uh, as if you can't tell already. <laughs> so, um, at first, I thought it, it will be uh, we find water. It's very exciting. We can maybe eventually colonize it or something. But really, the exciting part is the possibility of finding life because of the water. Water. That's right. That's right. Uh-huh. So something they said on the press announcement over and over is they kept pointing out that the conventional view of finding, looking for life was to drill. And we talked yeah. about that on the show yeah. with Adam Stelzner. And uh, mainly because it's, it's probably a nuclear physics problem more than anything else. But it's not easy. I mean, it's not easy to build a drill that can go yeah. down miles. Yeah but then doesn't also contaminate the water and also can somehow get a signal back. That's that was a really hard problem. And so they mentioned over and over in this press conference that these plumes do change the game in terms of 
you know, maybe a lander can just land in one of those yeah. areas and look on the surface. You know, and if you see, mm-hmm. if you said you see dead fish, then you know, <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, is it uh, would they collect a sample, or how does that work to in order to detect what's there? Well, if they can land, if they can have a lander, then that lander can have a, uh, some instruments which can uh, analyze the material which is there to see if there's any uh, organic material, uh-huh. uh, and uh, which would be have been produced by life. Uh, we, uh, the life itself you probably cannot initially find. What you have to look for is the evidence that there was life oh. uh, at, one, at one time. Although we've been talking to the show a lot about uh, uh, tardigrades or water bears, yeah. which also mm. made it into the news yet again. I'll get to that in a minute. But those things are really, really hardy. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm, I would actually at this point I'd be surprised if it doesn't have them there yeah. just because yeah. they are so good at surviving yeah. these radiation zones. Mm. And they basically like they're like the sea monkeys of outer space, where they, yeah. if you know, they have the the strength that you could drop them on your open, like you know, some sort of transfer from a, a debris from a comet or something that hit knocked off of Earth. Panspermia. Yeah, panspermia. See, I learned something from this podcast. <laughs> it, it lands on Europa, and then you know, one of these cracks allows it to yeah. go in, and they basically just come back to life and start <laughs> having baby water yeah, bears again. Yeah. Is there is there a way to see if something was panspermiated or is it just originally from that planet once we find if if we do find life there? Well, I think ultimately to do, to to do DNA, which is what you would like to do, you need to bring a sample back. Mm-hmm. I think yeah, the prospect so. of doing DNA on the surface of uh, Europa is remote. You got to take that well, water bear back and bring him on yeah. Mori. Although uh, um, <laughs> my wife works on little mini DNA testers, yeah. and last time I did a visit at JPL, they had all these posters yeah. about development for Mars missions yeah. or FIPER mi- missions for doing just that, doing like really detailed chemical analysis and even maybe DNA sequencing. Now, I don't, I don't think you're going to put that on a mission yeah. now until you know that there's yeah, a life. But I'm right, pretty right. sure the second you found out that there was life somewhere else, I think that would be an easy-to-fund project, the thing that then goes and either does a sample return or does the testing on site. Because this would be, like, the greatest yeah. discovery in history, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Literally, aliens. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for a while, when this announcement was announced, I thought it might be aliens. But then, because NASA said an amazing discovery. They do this. This happens all the time. They really hype a thing. And then later, they tweet it out. This is still a surprising discovery, but spoiler alert, not aliens. And then yeah. immediately everyone got less interested. I guess they get too bad if yeah. you uh, if you make it sound like it's alien. Like a, so the, the British press thought that it was aliens, so they published. They thought it might be. Um, what are we going to do when yeah. it actually is? No one's going to listen. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> is it possible to actually just have a piece of fish shooting out of the geyser? Or is it always like some just uh, microorganism or something? Well, we don't know, of course. So, uh, yeah. but but we do know on Earth the, the only thing that was here for billions of years were microbes, mm. right? And uh, the complicated life we all take for granted is fairly recent. Um, mm. Even uh, even tardigrades. Yeah, pretty, very. Pretty, so, yeah. it's the thing you look for are the things which are which you which you begin with. Because mm-hmm. presumably all life has to begin that way. Simple. Yeah. Uh, mm. And uh, so you start looking for. If you could, at Mars, for instance, you could like to find some evidence that there were microbes. Did they leave any, any uh, hint behind, any evidence behind that they were there? Um, and, uh, and obviously, if you could find a hot spot on Mars where there was water, you'd say, well, maybe they're still there. And if you could drill down uh, where it's warmer and it's still liquid water, they could be there. 
Here we have at, Encel, at your, uh, Enceladus Center the opportunity to sample now stuff coming out from this deep ocean. And, you know, there's no reason to believe that microbes could not have evolved there. Mm-hmm. And but there's not really a possibility of just like a dinosaur shooting at us, <laughs> right? Uh, no, why? I, well, I, I was kind of controversial when I brought it up with somebody. I mean, I think Europa could have fish, but I completely agree yeah. that's not necessarily the best place to start because not finding a fish doesn't mean that there isn't life. Yeah, that's right. uh, mm-hmm. Fish are harder than that. But yeah. certainly the environment is not so f- foreign that if we put a, one a fish there now, yeah. it very well, you know, they could possibly live there because they have heat, they have, if there's food, they can have their, but actually that's an important point. Another reason you want to look for microbes is we depend on microbes. Like we, it's, it's a necessary, but not sufficient. I take uh, probiotics. Is that that, that what it is? Okay. Well, presumably the, any kind of, if there was really complicated life on Europa, it would need to eat something. And what it would eat would probably need to be microbes. And those microbes would need to get energy from somewhere. And they, mm. they certainly can't get it from the sun because it's just very, very mm. cold there and covered in ice. So whatever's down there is in, in the dark. And, uh, you know, th- but there's probably chemical energy, just like we yeah. see yeah, yeah, on yeah. the bottom of the Earth's oceans. And things do eat those. What's the condition there? Uh, under that for Earth life? Oh, I mean, uh, on Europa, is it really hot, really cold? Well, really? cold. well this, the surface is frozen water. So uh-huh. you know, and uh, but in, inside, it could be quite warm because of this tidal heating effect. Because so, that's you have to be warm enough to melt the ice. Mm-hmm. And there's probably volcanic activity and vents where hot chemicals come out, just like on the bottom of uh, the oceans here on Earth. And when we, you know, when we send. Uh, probes down there into the ocean, you find a whole little ecosystem. Yeah. You see archaea, which is a whole branch of life that really does well with this kind of environment, uh, just sitting there loving the chemicals coming out in the heat. And then there's multicellular things eating those, yeah. and there's crabs that then come and eat that stuff. And wow. it, it, it basically, even though it's way at the bottom of the ocean, it's it's just complete. And it's a whole little ecosystem. These are thermal vents where almost boiling water is coming from the interior, yet the microbes manage to live. And they thrive on the en- on the energy coming out the, mm. out of the surface. They don't depend on sunlight at all. So, so the whole planet is water and ice. There's no. Is there land? Is there? Well, there is a uh, yes. There's a, a rocky core, and in fact, it's believed at the middle there's a, a iron core. Just like oh. Earth has. Yeah, just yeah. like the Earth has, uh, but it's much smaller. But and it's it, about the size of our moon, actually. And it's pretty. Yeah, it's pretty big. Yeah. Yeah. It's just. In fact, it, it's so big; it's like one of the it's one of the top five moons ever discovered. Because um, so, yeah. Galileo discovered it four hundred years ago, and in fact, if uh, if any of our listeners have binoculars, you can go out and see it. It's actually I really like looking at the Galilean yeah. moons because it's a it's a very beautiful sight because we see the whole system edge on. It's it's in line with the sun, so you see just this beautiful. You see Jupiter as a solid disk, and then you see these four little dots. And what's great about it is you can. Uh, and this is, must have been how Galileo felt about it, is you can tell that they're not going around the Earth just by looking at them. You can well, see them moving like <laughs> this around Jupiter. Like even in the mm. course of one night, yeah. you can see them move a little bit. Wow. And if, you, if you're patient enough, you go back day after day, you can track yeah. them and you can see they're clearly going around yeah. uh, this thing because they just go back and forth. Now, of course, you guys discovered a lot more moons. Yeah, yes, when, how many right. did Voyager find? Uh, when they I, I, I really don't remember. <laughs> yeah, <there's> so <laughs> many. It's that like, many, wow. It's like 40 yeah. or something like that. It's um, and, and there's probably even more because Galileo wasn't really a fully functioning yeah. 
uh, spacecraft. Right. So right. it wasn't really able to take all the pictures yeah. that it wanted to the way Cassini did. Yeah. Cassini, when it went, found even more moons yeah. of Saturn that nobody could see. Lots of Earth. fragments. They're really fragments of bigger moons which uh, uh, were broken up. And so you end up with a lot of really tiny moons uh, besides the ones that we're familiar with, which are more like our moon. What qualifies a moon to be labeled as a moon? It has to be in orbit around a planet. So it was just a piece of dust that orbits around. Well, that they, you have to be able to. You also have to be able to say what its orbit is. So you have okay, to, all right, and so you have to. It has to be a discrete enough object that you can track it and and predict exactly where to look for it as a function of time. But it's funny uh, that yeah. that ambiguity does come up around Saturn, right? Because there's the rings, which are clearly yeah, continuous thing, but even in the rings. There's these moons. There are some moons <laughs> which, 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 which we know, but the ring particles themselves, of course, are countless. And, uh, and you, can say what they're, you can say what the orbits must be, but you cannot pick a ring particle out because it's too small. Mm, there's I probably see. some, like, uh, if there's some inhabitant in one of these things, it's just like trying to fight for moon status. Which <laughs> <laughs> is like, you're just a, like, can you imagine being just a big chunk of ice, yeah. but you're... Maybe the biggest around. Right, right. It's like the whole Pluto discussion, (laughs) kind of, right? right? It's like, no, I'm a moon, (laughs) man. Don't discriminate just because I'm small. So the other news that came out earlier this week about uh, tardigrades. By the way, I got a lot of feedback about water bears. People liked us. Oh, yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah. A couple people came up to me. He's like, dude, really like the water bath. (laughs) So so I'm going to go back to that. And a pro scientist bit. They really like that. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, So nature. There's an article in Nature. Uh, that goes on with this mystery of water bears and why they're so resilient. And um, these biologists think they've discovered uh, there's basically a protein they have that makes them able to have their DNA ripped apart and reassembled. And uh, I should have written down the name of that protein. But uh, what's even more amazing is they injected this, uh, the DNA from water bears into human cells and human cells are able to make this protein and regenerate <laughs> like like, like Wolverine. Yeah. <laughs> That's insane. So, and the, you know, obviously, the medical applications of this is why they got why they're doing this yeah. research. But that's an amazing. That, I mean, that's a huge leap for you know the possibility of this being a cure for radiation sickness wow. or cancer, maybe long term space travel. Because as we yeah. we talked about with Adam. Landing on one of the problems with landing on Mars or traveling to Mars, and even let's say an even more impossible journey right now, going with a human to a place like Europa, is just the radiation dose is too high. Um, we can probably get to Mars fast enough where it's not a problem with today's technology, but at some point, you can't really be an astronaut forever, and you certainly yeah. can't go to a place like Europa where you're bombarded yeah, yeah. nonstop. So that's right. Uh, so Maybe this is the cure is we just have, you know, either genetically modified people or we have uh, like new drugs that allow it to deliver this kind of protein to repair things. uh, How promising or how speculative is this? Like how like is it possible to shoot some water bear inside of me right now? Okay, so so in terms of putting it into human cells and those human cells getting some of these uh, properties. That's not speculative because they actually did it. Mm-hmm. The speculative part is all the stuff I just said about it having right. helping mankind and everything like that. But I mean, that's the whole point of doing the research is to find out how far can we take that. Maybe there's a dead end. You know, maybe it's also toxic or it's yeah. just not <clears throat> deliverable. 
Um, certainly, since you're not genetically engineered to have this, um, unless it was delivered to you in some way, you don't have it at the moment, so it wouldn't help you. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we've gotten really good at making viruses that can inject DNA into people to produce certain... Uh, so you need like a vehicle genes. to deliver that DNA into me. Uh, yeah. Uh, or and you can't just like put a needle in my arm and, and it well, doesn't Well, maybe someday. Not, not right now. That would, plus, that would know. take a lot of FDA approval. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'm willing to volunteer yeah. myself. Yeah, I mean, the reason the they first can... water bear, water <laughs> human bear. I mean, the, the reason you could do this research is because you're doing it to human cells that are just sitting in a, in a test tube yeah, or a petri yeah. dish. And it's... It's a lot more uh, ethical to do that. Like, there. like, like, what is that human cell? Like a piece of hair, like a piece of skin, or uh, what, what do you I mean? Fortunately, I don't know enough. It's probably huh. human stem cells or something like that. Um, just oh. human. T- I, there, there's probably, you know, the way these things usually work is there's like this one stock of cells that everyone uses for the research, and they all get, you know clones of that one stock or something but i don't i don't know so that just one it. dude cell like i'm not being... enough of a biologist <laughs> to answer that kind of huh. all I, I just read the part that it's human cells but that could mean anything that's very cool that's like the ultimate stem cell and they can help like you said space so, travel and possibilities yeah and it also reaffirms my conspiracy theory that water bears might be sent here to <laughs> <laughs> to get us to turn us into space aliens what do you think about that <laughs> well I think it's it's really great that uh, one's looking at these other options for, uh, which could have some long-term health benefits. Clearly, but uh, but you do have to worry about side effects. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, so you're also one of the things I also said in the press conference was uh, talking about a possible replacement for Hubble, and I saw, I, I know that you're actually actively involved in that. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, the replacement telescope is the James Webb telescope. It'll be an infrared telescope with a mirror, with a segmented mirror, like the Keck telescopes here on Earth. Uh, I don't really have anything directly to do with uh, James Webb, uh, but it will be operating in the infrared rather than the visible, uh, so that it will be looking uh, at things which are so far away, they're moving so fast that the, the spectra are redshifted. Uh, into the infrared range from the visible range, even from the ultraviolet range. So it's it's uh, really looking looking at uh, some of the, f- the first stars and the first galaxies. But uh, on the press conference, though, they said that this these observations made in Hubble were all in the uh, the far infrared. Uh, sorry, yeah. far ultraviolet. Yeah. The, Will James uh, Webb be able to make similar kind of measurements? You know, I don't think so. I think it does not have instruments on it to do that. I think it's I think it's really an infrared telescope. But I'm I really don't know. Okay. Uh, another fun thing that they said that really amazed me is that they um, they actually did photon counting here. They were talking about uh, one of the one of the journalists asked, "Why did this take so long to get the data out?" And um, one of the scientists said, "Well, because uh, you know it's not like we snapped a picture. It's they literally count these photons of light hitting uh-huh. the the telescope because." The region of, of light they're looking for is so uh, far out of the, the range that it's sensitive to that they just little bits of it go by. So a lot of these telescopes now, it's, it's, it's not like the Hubble 3D movie I saw in IMAX. It's more like just information instead of a picture that we collect, right? Or, for, which? Yeah. For these plumes it was. Okay, yeah. Okay, yeah. For oh, the plume. Oh, yeah. Because as they kept pointing out, the reason this is, you know, this is not something that Hubble was specifically designed to do. This is a, a lot of creative reuse of what it's able to yeah. do already so um it's such a small amount of light that's coming because the, the light they were looking at is comes from the sun goes to jupiter bounces off of jupiter then passes through the plume and then they look for 
signs that it's absorbing some of the light from Jupiter. Yeah. So it's a, it's a re, it's like a really long <laughs> convoluted path it takes. And then on top of that, it's not really absorbing very much. So it's a really faint, uh, you know, bit of information they're looking for. Yeah. And at the end of the day, they're sitting there. And, and then on top of that, it's all in this very far region of ultraviolet where there isn't a lot of light. Most of the light coming from the sun is visible. Uh, and with a little bit more, about 20% of it going in the infrared, but there really isn't very much yeah. in the ultraviolet. Mm. Um, and so, you know, having it go all the way to Jupiter, bounce off, you know, I'm sure a lot of it is absorbed by Jupiter, so it doesn't, yeah. not a lot comes from there. And then on top of that, you're just looking for the shadow. So, um, yeah. Right. Can we talk about uh, the Voyager? That's, oh, yeah. Oh, it's 40 years now, is that right? It'll it's be, 40. well, it, yeah, 2017 will be its 40th anniversary. Did you guys plan on it lasting that long or working for this long? <laughs> uh, you couldn't really plan on it. When, this, when Voyager was launched, the space age was only 20 years old. So mm. there was no basis for predicting or planning for a 40-year mission. All we did was plan, plan for a four-year mission to Saturn, Jupiter and Saturn, with the possibility of step-by-step -step going further. Yeah. And so uh, we flew by Saturn in 1980. And decided that uh, we could we should head to Uranus, which took us to 1986, and then having succeeded there, we continued on to Neptune, which was 1989, 12 years after launch. And ever since then, though, we've been on what's called the interstellar mission, trying to get outside of the mm -hmm. bubble the Sun creates around itself, bubble of plasma that is, uh, is the atmosphere of the Sun expanding a million miles per hour outward, uh, creating this huge bubble. And we finally left the bubble and entered interstellar space, a space between the stars, uh, in August of 2012. Wow. That's how long it took. Voyager 1 is now outside where nothing has been before, and Voyager 2 is following along behind maybe another year or so before it gets there. That's, that's incredible. I mean, it's, 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 nothing has broken down in this machine in 40 years. Well, things have broken, but fortunately <laughs> nothing ca catastrophic has broken. And we have had, we have redundant systems in many cases. When the traveling wave tube, which is the radio transmitter, uh, finally wore out, uh, because it's a tube, uh, it finally wore out after the first 25 years, we turned on our backup transmitter. And it was fine because it's brand new. <laughs> wow. That's awesome. Because there's no way somebody can just go up there and no. get a new tube. So <laughs> no, no, no. This is amazing. Like, look, this is 40 years of 40-year-old technology, and it's still working perfectly. Going through space, going through interstellar space, and my iPhone cannot work for more than two years. What is – what's going on? Like, you know, like, why – why can they? Why can't people build like a better product? If 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 this because this is like amazing to me, being used to like just crappy consumer yeah. products, you know, and like even from a a, a good company, you know. But th this has lasted forty years, nothing broken, and no way to fix it. Right. But there's also nothing happening to it. That's kind of nice, yeah. right? It's in it's in the like coldest, most yeah. you know. It's a, biggest vacuum that you could basically yeah. have uh, yeah. in our solar system. Once we got by the planets, our main risks were the planets. Mm. The, ra the radiation at Jupiter was a big risk. The rings at Saturn were a big risk. Uh, so you want to you don't want to run into things. But once you away from the planets, it's empty. I mean, if it ran into something, that itself would that almost would be, be awesome. That's, that's because right. it's like, that's wow, right. we found yeah. a thing. Yeah. Like, how how big like, is this thing? 
Oh, there's a model of it at JPL. The we spacecraft, though, check it, it out. It's uh, its uh, main antenna is about 12 feet in diameter. It, it's about the size oh, of this okay. room, right? But yeah. it has these long uh, arms. That yeah, it has some booms. Yeah. And, and how does it propel itself through oh, space? It, does. It, it, it basically gets launched from Florida with a big rocket. Mm -hmm. It flows, flies by Jupiter, and Jupiter is orbiting the sun, so Jupiter grabs it and flings it on. Uh, and Ju Saturn grabbed it and Gave it another so slingshot. So using the gravity yeah, of... Yeah, using the slingshot effect to... So uh, is there a guide to it? Like, are we guiding its positioning? Well, we, we can trim the speed a little bit so we can make sure we, when we went to the next planet, we were arriving at the right time in the right place. So we had a little bit of fuel on board, which we still have. Wow. Uh, which we use for these trajectory corrections. But the, the main energy came from the launch in Florida plus the flybys of the planets, the, the, the gravity boost. And the, and the fuel, is it, what, what kind of fuel Hydrazine is, is the fuel we have. Which is the, the dangerous stuff that, yeah, that we did, developed at Caltech and JPL. Yeah. Wow, and you, we still have some of that after 40 years? Oh, yeah, we, depend, yeah we, didn't need, we didn't need it all yeah. uh, on our way to the planets, and now we hardly need any at all, just enough to keep the thing always pointed at Earth. Because ah. it has to be pointed at Earth for us to get the radio signals. And the transmission oh, of the point. signal, you said, is from, uh, what, plutonium? Well, that's the power. The power. The electrical power is generated uh, from the thermal heat of natural radioactive decay of plutonium-238, which decays with an 88-year half-life. So every 88 years, we have half as much heat. Mm -hmm. You put a lot of thermocouples on this heat hot object and generate electricity. And so it's a very simple, no-moving-part power supply, wow. which, of course— I mean, you're using the power. That means the energy is going down. And eventually, maybe 10 years from now, we'll have to finally turn— the last instrument off. The mm -hmm. transmitter, basically? Yeah, well, we, we'll one, be or? turning, well, well, and if you turn the transmitter off, you might as well stop because you don't have any data, right? <laughs> so the last thing you'll turn off is one of the last instruments. And then at that point, there'll only be engineering on the spacecraft until there's not enough power to keep the spacecraft running. So how long does this power last? Well, we, we think we have enough to keep us going for another 10 years. Another 10 years? Yeah. Wow, so 50 years of power off. Yeah. How big of a plutonium thing? Uh, how big? I don't remember how much. The, the size is about... Probably about like, 30 pounds, I think. Yeah, I don't remember. Maybe less. Are we using that for power for other stuff? Well, it's Can we have a plutonium car or something? Well, no, no, no. no, no, it's, no, a, no. it's a huge problem, actually. So we've talked about this before, but the, the plutonium on Curiosity used quite a bit. It's it's running yeah. itself that way. The rover has exactly the same power supply. But mm. uh, Russia had a really big stockpile, but they... They that they were going to give us, and by big stockpile, I mean like on the order of you know tens of kilograms, not yeah. like, uh, yeah. not hundreds yeah, of thousands right. of kilograms. It's very hard to make stuff. It's not that it's not to be confused with the plutonium that's in uh, nuclear warheads. It's a different isotope. That's plutonium two thirty nine. This is plutonium two thirty eight. Oh. Um, but it is made. You you make it in the process of making warheads. Well, not a lot of people are doing that nowadays. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, they're more you know people are more about trying to reduce the number that they have. Mainly the two superpowers. So as you're making a warhead, just on the size leaks out some like b well, battery power. I, I, this is like, I know it's I sound kind like of a, yeah I sound like of. an idiot, but I mean that's for the common. Yeah, is that kind of it leaks out. But in a really expensive, complicated way. Okay. Uh, but uh, separates would be a better term. Yeah, ah, I see. It's like separating cream out of milk. 
you separate the heavier isotope out of the lighter isotope. Right. And, they, uh, and you actually take it out of warheads on purpose. It's actually a contaminant because the fact that it gives off heat ruins the, yeah. the nuclear bomb part. Yeah. And so that's why it's even taken out at all. It, you just leave it in if it were if it were passive. But yeah. it's actually a contaminant. Yeah. But then once you have it, it's really good for these spacecraft where you go where there's no... But we no... can't use it on Earth. Like, no, you could. Dangerous. There's just could. so little. There's and it's all... Little of it. You wouldn't... I mean, the big problem, like Juno, for example, is a spacecraft that just went to Jupiter and to keep, it basically was designed to not use it. But instead, it has these solar panels, which are enormous. Oh. I mean, and that's because there's so little light at, uh, at Jupiter. It would have been, you know, it'd be better and easier. If we had tons of this stuff, we'd put it on every rover yeah. probably, or, you right. know, every rover, every... How much uh, is that little space. bit that was in uh, Voyager? Is it millions, trillions, billions of dollars? That little bit of... I really don't remember. Or... It's not really the cost, though. It's because it's... Because, like I said, it's it's uh, it's the contaminant. So it's actually, you know, waste, I guess you could call it. But oh, because in order to, have... to produce this much, yeah. there's that much nuclear yeah. waste yeah. that comes with it. Yeah. Well, it is the nuclear waste. It is. Oh, um, it is? Okay, it I is I the waste. It's just, so it's it's kind of free, but only if you're making, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you're doing something else. Yeah. So the U.S. has actually stood, stepped up, and they we are starting a process of making it. But it now, so now it's costly because it's being made mm. just for, for that, just yeah. for the purpose of making it. If and, it, it if it's just sitting here, like, would I get cancer? Is it bad for oh, you? Oh, yeah, yeah. You don't want to Oh, it's bad it times. It. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's also very hot. It's one of the few things where uh, if you just have, a like, a pellet of it and you leave it on the table, I mean, it it's glows. glowing red hot. Oh, so it's like one of those, like, you see on The Simpsons. Or yes, like the, car- exactly. the movies and stuff. Yeah. It's actually, like, glowing green. Is it well, green? Well, it doesn't glow no, green. No, it glows <laughs> red. <laughs> green. It glows red. <laughs> yeah. What glows green? Why is all the plutonium in movies glow green? They uh, Okay, so the reason <laughs> is it's a... Green because it's scary, but in reality, uh, what you associate with it is glowing blue. So that is true of radioactive material. So in a, if you go to a power plant, you see the if you go and stand over the core, the core is giving off this stuff called shrink-off radiation. And mm-hmm. shrink-off radiation is uh, all the, the hot particles that are flying at it. The particles themselves are invisible, but as they fly through... Uh, water, they give off kind of the equivalent of a sonic boom. And the sonic boom is this very blue light. Wow. And when I was in Germany just a couple of months ago, we had a pulsar reactor there that's that's really awesome. They did this very dramatic thing where they like turn the lights off and they do, do this countdown in German, which sounds really menacing. And then uh, it just sends off a single pulse from this reactor. And, and uh, since all the room is dark, all you see is the shrink-off light, and it's so bright, it shines onto the ceiling, and you get to stand wow. over it. There's, like, plates on the ground, wow. and you're looking straight down. You're like, wow, it just it actually goes super critical, not even critical. It's a super critical Now you reactor. have testicular cancer. No, it's okay. actually, see, that's the fun part about nuclear, being a nuclear physicist is I already knew that the dose was extremely small. So it's dramatic, yeah. but the water is actually blocking yeah. all the radiation, so it's, it's not actually that big a deal. Does the light... Uh, glow kind of like a light bulb or, or, or like how well, does it bl- look like? It's brilliant blue. So it looks like a blue LED. I mean, it's... That's it's, a Toyota color. Yeah. Brilliant. <laughs> I mean, the reason it glows blue is because the energy kind of goes off into the UV and then our eyes can't see the, uh, past it. So you're seeing wow. sort of this very bright... Uh, it's a really distinctive color, but what's what's cool about it is it, there's no sound with it. So you just see this. You're used to things that give off light, yeah. making a lot of, you know, making some kind of like, buzzing mm, noise. Yeah. yeah. And then this thing, all you hear is the little air puff of the uh, control rod. So you hear, 
and then all of a sudden there's this very bright blue wow. flash and it just dies down and it's uh, it's really exciting so when you do your science consulting for movies do you tell people like these radioactive material they glow blue instead of green because everything is green uh, i've seen blue in movies for right. sure because they usually go and they film it i think but they actually uh, film the thing the light i the, think i've wow. seen simulated reactors in movies before i'm trying to remember if i have um I think I maybe know. Simpson set the president uh, yeah. on, on yeah, green yeah. radioactive <laughs> material on Mr. Burns' well, factory. A lot of things called scintillators glow green, so yeah. that might be where it came from. Actually, is that you can you can uh, you can put a radioactive material inside of a scintillator, and it'll it'll give off green light if it's a green scintillator. Mm. So it's and the reason there is because it's uh, like the glow into the dark stuff. Oh, and also uh, that's right, um, tritium signs are green hmm. yeah like an exit sign a lot of times you'll see huh. it'll, it'll stay glowing in the dark and that's actually powered by tritium Whoa. so that's kind of where i think that might be where it came from hmm. why tritium, is that oh sorry go ahead tritium is actually pretty harmless is the funny part because it has a really low <laughs> it's uh, also radioactive yeah it's radioactive it's in water anyway so it, you already have some used tritium but uh it has this really low end point so it just um it, it really can't penetrate. I mean, you can block it with a piece of paper. Why is that? Why is plutonium so cool? Like, we can make well, warheads out of it. We can. <laughs> I think this yeah. is why. Because yeah. you can send a thing into outer space and it keeps No, but coming. what makes it so cool? Uh, I mean, the makeup of it. Why, why, can we, why is everything else not uh, as cool? Like, give out as much energy? Well, it's artificial. That's part of it. You make it. But it has to do with the number of protons and neutrons in the nucleus. Mm -hmm. and uh and that's a very complicated physics that uh but if you make a nucleus too heavy it uh it decays ah yeah uranium so. is really pretty much like the last isotope on the the chain that can sit around yeah. from for billions yeah. of years and and plutonium is made from uranium so, um, if, so if you can make it heavier but then it doesn't last very long because it's unstable it's so just it's barely like hanging together and then boom and that is what's happening in plutonium-238. Yeah. It's falling apart, basically. These particles called alpha particles just sort of eventually, they just Evaporate. fall out. It's kind of like evaporating. It's just thinking of stuff evaporating out of the nucleus of mm -hmm. the atom. So yeah. it's like the perfect boiling point to some degree where it doesn't evaporate super fast, but it's super powerful. Yeah. yeah. Now, there was lots of it in whatever star collapsed and made the Earth, but it only lasted 88 years. Yeah. Yeah. So, oh. so it's all gone now. Yeah. It's turned into other things. I see. Um, right. But uh, so so it is made in nature, but it's all gone now. Yeah. So, but we can make more because now we know how. It also gave way to a lot of great '80s movies. Yeah, when you have <laughs> right. to try to get the plutonium from the Russians or something. It was great. Good times. Which we we try to do. We we gave up. <laughs> We're making our own. So uh, but, uh, yeah, but this is the reason this is a big deal is for Europa. Sometimes you know, at some point, people were talking about maybe like using plutonium two thirty eight to drill through. Yeah. But yeah. I don't I don't know if we have enough. And right. I mean, does that probably leads to a lot of other problems? I imagine, right? Have you ever worked on a, a pro proposals? No, or anything like no, this? I haven't. But okay. there they've got there is the, uh, the study going on now to design this uh, Europa flyby. Uh, mission and with maybe with a little lander so mm, it's be awesome um, and so now i guess today we might have a candidate location uh, yeah. to land at least that's what yeah. it sounded like they yeah. wanted yeah yeah that's right <laughs> how, how long does that take us to get to europa with a new new guy 
Well, it really depends on how big it is, how much it weighs, whether we have to fly around several times in the inner planets to have them give oh, us Oh, to boost. swing it, right. Yeah, so it's years. Oh, okay. Okay. Galileo, I think, was launched in 1989 and got to Jupiter in 1993 or some, 95, something like that. So gravitational energy is like mostly what these guys are using because you can't just use jet propulsion throughout space. Well, that's the, that? well you, you can't. You burn the rocket out in a couple of minutes. That's right. it. You burned all the fuel. Yeah. And so, so uh, and that's our biggest rockets burn only a few minutes. Yeah, that's called the, the curse of the rocket equation. Or, yeah. Is that what it's called? The, yeah. yeah. I mean, the whole problem with rockets is you have to bring the fuel to burn. go fast, but you need more fuel yeah. to bring that fuel. <laughs> right. So, so this is this can all be reflected in a, in a nice equation called the rocket equation. Right. And it shows you why if you want just, you know, a, what, a couple of people on the moon or something, why you need a thing that's yeah. like the size of... Yeah. of uh, all these stages, you know, big, a whole stage, a set uh -huh. of rockets... On top of each other, right, right, because you can't build one rocket big enough, because it's uh, the fuel is just too heavy. So you have to have main rocket, and then it launches another smaller rocket, huh. which launches another smaller rocket. That that's that's interesting. I always thought uh, my uncle was dumb for doing this. Uh, and so in China, there's a thing where like you don't fuel up your car all the way. Because it weighs your car down. So, <laughs> well, so he well, just yeah. okay. so he puts five bucks in the tank and then stop by every single gas station. I'm like, dude, that's not gonna make a difference. Just go lose some weight. That's probably that's probably better yeah. for your car. That's but funny. I guess it makes sense yeah. from yeah. a rocket and, scientist standpoint. And that's a problem with electric cars. I mean, it's yeah. one of the things that's made them hard is when the when the batteries were still made out of lead. Yeah. That just doesn't really yeah. work because you're hauling around a really really heavy amount of energy. Yeah. Wow, my uncle is way smarter than I thought. Speaking of uh, rocket engines in interstellar space, though, or interplanetary space, SpaceX tested one of theirs today. I think it's called the Raptor, if oh, I have that right. Oh. Um, I should have had that up. Um, and I don't, unfortunately, they didn't say enough about what makes it different. Mm. And how do you feel about commercial space flight? Because I feel like this is one of the things that bothers me about it is they, there is no details on what it is. How do you feel about it? Uh, details on what, what? Like, like why this new rocket engine oh. is special. All I have is what SpaceX puts out. You know, it's like a brochure. So, well, but I think uh, you know it's good to have uh, new suppliers involved because they tend to innovate, and so uh, I think launch is a key factor. We need to find a way to launch things at lower cost, and I think SpaceX has been trying to show that there is a way to do that if you can recover the vehicle and use it again. Mm -hmm. Well, hit. They recovered the vehicle, but they have still to demonstrate that they can use it again. Right, uh, right now, you you throw away all your you just like you throw it away. Right? Yeah. You launch and the rocket goes. Mm -hmm. Isn't Branson doing something too? An Amazon I we, guy. I think it's like a new club that every billionaire joins. This <laughs> <laughs> is like, well, I want a rocket company. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I would join that club if I got a billion dollars, you know? I feel like they're all racing to Mars, and they're going to have, like, a like a boxing match on Mars <laughs> or something. <laughs> it's just going to be all the world's billionaires. Pay-per-view. Yeah. UFC. <laughs> 400 on Mars. That would be amazing. So all this, the big picture uh, we, we talk about here, right? Like, it's, it's, it's always, uh, if we do find a life or the possibility of life on Europa, it, it leads us to... Um, have a clear picture of where we came from. That that's really the ultimate goal, right? Well, we like to understand how how did all this happen, right? How did it start? Mm -hmm. And you can't go back in time, uh, but you can go find other examples. 
And Titan is another example where, in fact, the chemistry that's occurring on Titan, which is a moon of, of Saturn's, with an atmosphere like the Earth's, uh, the chemistry that's going on there today may resemble the chemistry which occurred on Earth before life evolved. So it would, it's clearly a place that we, we need to get back to to examine more carefully and more detail what the chemistry is that's going on in that atmosphere, which is a nitrogen atmosphere like here on Earth, but where there's no oxygen. There's methane, look of natural gas in the atmosphere that's being converted to complex hydrocarbons today. Mm. And that's what was going on in the early Earth's atmosphere before life evolved and created all the oxygen that we breathe. Wow. And they recently found uh, sand dunes or, or dunes. I don't know if they're made out of sand. No, uh, but just... they're not in Titan, no. This would be uh, probably uh, a lot of this organic material that's made in the atmosphere rains out. Some of it's liquid. Uh, some of it's po- polymers, po- polymerized. So it's like plastic, plastic. dunes. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. so weird. Yeah, yeah. yeah, they have these like organic lakes and and then these particles of organic yeah. dune. I yeah. mean, it's it's a really it's a different world. So is it is it I mean possible to ever get to the bottom of this? In, in some sense, like okay, we we find we find life here, and then this proves another thing, and then now okay, we get more information. Now we got to go find something else. Like, is it possible to to really find out? Well, we came from to some degree. Isn't there always a question beyond that, beyond there, another? That that's that's right. One can always ask more questions once you know more. Right. And uh, I think that's the nice thing about science is somehow the frontier continually expands. Mm-hmm. It's not a fixed frontier. It's a moving frontier. Which the more you learn, the further the frontier is away, uh, because you're smarter and you know what you don't know. Yeah. At, at least at least you know some of what you don't know. Uh, but there are always things you just don't know, period, until you try to make, try to observe. And that's where you realize the nature is really more complex than you imagined, than you thought. Right. And that's one thing Voyager revealed was a, a remarkable uh, diversity of bodies in the solar system. Rather than having a bunch of moons, which were all the same stuff, uh, everyone is distinctive. And, and yet they, all, they were all the result of the same physical processes. But... The actual uh, circumstances made uh, rather different results. And so by studying those, you better understand how the Earth became what it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, now there are other planetary systems where, again, they're unlike our planetary system. So that's another clue that our, our models of our solar system probably were really not really the full story. Mm-hmm. Because we're finding all the other planetary systems quite different than this one. And how do you understand that? Why is that? What is it that's causing these differences? Is is the Big Bang still the um, the, the the I guess the first thing we know about how this come about? As far as now, that's right, the yeah. Big Bang, and so, the, the radiation left over from that Big Bang is called the cosmic background radiation, and uh, and that's the that's the information we have about the first few minutes mm-hmm. of the universe. So uh, how do we ever find out? If, uh, if like, what caused the Big Bang? And then what are those uh, particles that caused the Big Bang? Is that is that even possible? Or should I just say, screw it, I'm just going to believe in Adam and Eve? Well, it might be <laughs> it might be possible, but it's it's uh, I think it's a little bit past the purview of uh, planetary science just because you get to these really high energies with mm-hmm. that. But, you know, we're also playing, there's a lot of, a lot of catch-up work to do, too. You know, like, 
So there's still flat Earth society. I still have a lot of trouble getting people to believe the Earth is older than five thousand years old. I so gave up on those. People I don't a think long we need ago. to set too high yes. a bar. We need to just <laughs> let's kind of as a group move along. You know, it's a lot like uh, my my kids in in uh, in daycare. You know, if you're shuffling a bunch of kids around. Uh, you've probably seen this on campus. They'll like give them a rope. Yeah, you have yeah. to sort of like if you just let kids f- go off on their own, they just wander around. And you'll lose a couple. Mm-hmm. I think like society's kind of like that. We need some something the equivalent of a rope because for some reason you tell somebody, okay, grab on the rope, yeah. and the little kids grab on the rope, and then they stay together because they're yeah. like, oh, we're going like a team into the future. And uh, yeah, we I think on Earth we have quite a lot of people that um, have let go of the rope. Is not yeah, roped. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, I want to thank you very much for coming here. Thank you, so um, Can I ask you one quick question sure. before we head out? Uh, can you can you just tell me what it was it like when you were on uh, Stephen Colbert's show and they brought out that award? Were you <laughs> expecting that? That was a <laughs> t- complete surprise. Uh, I had no idea. And I wasn't sure it was real initially because I thought, well, how is it possible that Stephen Colbert is giving me a NASA medal? <laughs> <laughs> and then I saw uh, John Grunsfeld, who was the associate administrator at NASA, sitting in the front row. And I said, well, this is probably real. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. It's been a real pleasure having yeah, you on here. You Thank you very All much. Right. Thank you. Um, this has been Surely You're Joking. Yeah. Goodbye. Right.